Hello and welcome to episode 240 of the Bad Wolf podcast. I'm Martin and what an episode I've got for you this week. I was very, very fortunate to get an hour alone with Craig Kelly. Now, Craig Kelly is an actor I've admired for nearly two decades, from his work in Titanic to Queer as Folk to Scream of the Shelka. He's just a consistently good actor, and he was very kind to give me an hour of his time today. It's a great chat, and honestly, I think it is one of the best interviews I've ever done personally. This episode really means a lot to me. I hope you enjoy it. now joined by mr craig kelly craig how you doing mate i'm very good how are you my friend i'm doing all right thanks for agreeing to do this you are absolutely welcome now now is it martin or is it bad wolf oh you can call me martin okay yeah i'm kind of stuck with that username now where's that from i'm a doctor who fan so it was kind of two references mashed together Okay. When we were starting out, but yeah, kind of, kind of stuck, stuck with it now. Are you, are you an absolute massive, massive Doctor Who fan then? I'd say yes, but I'm not as big as some that I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and there is some fanatics, shall we say, out there. Let me start by saying, if you're interested in Doctor Who, I know Jodie a little bit. I worked with her years and years and years ago, and she was such a delightful delightful girl and i actually think she's a brilliant doctor who oh so and, do I. and i was I, well and i was thinking you know because i thought that that's the question that you might ask me <laughs> i've got no idea why i thought he he might ask me who my favorite doctor who is and i've got to say tom baker and and jody so let's just get that out of the way but when i saw her in doctor who you know i was a little nervous for her in the same way that i'd be nervous for any actor taking on that role because it's absolutely huge and the level of expectation etc etc but because i know her and i know what sweet girl she is and i know what a big change that was you know for the fans you know the first woman doctor so i was absolutely delighted for her that she smashed it out of the park so i just wanted to to share that with you oh mate that's lovely i know everybody that's worked on the show always speaks so highly of her yeah, she's a gorgeous girl, really, really down to a kind girl as well. And obviously intelligent, judging by her performance and the nuances. And I mean, the fact that she's so relaxed playing that part, sometimes the, the bigger the part, you know, the harder it is to pull off because the pressure that you put on yourself. What I noticed about her was it was like water off a duck's back she seemed to be born to play that role i knew she was going to be great when i saw some footage of her with a fan who'd come to watch film and it was a disabled fan and yeah the way she was with him and the way she spoke about the show and the passion that she had and she enjoyed his passion i was like yeah she gets it yeah she definitely gets it she definitely gets it and 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 so so in the doctor who world she says she, she's a massive hit right with the fans i'd say 50 50 
Really? Is it 50 50? Yeah. Right. Well, the ones who like. That surprises me. That surprises me. But there are a lot who like her, but they don't really enjoy the way the show has gone. Oh, okay. So it's not necessarily that they're negative towards her. But you did a Doctor Who, right? You did Scream of the Shelker. I did. And I was was absolutely delighted when I did that because although I'm not a massive Doctor Who fan, because of the Queerest Folk connection uh, and the fact that I played a character in that there was a massive Doctor Who fan which in turn obviously was interesting for fans because Russell T Davis went on to reinvent the franchise I I, got Scream of the Shalker and that was after I'd done Queer as Folk and what I loved about it was A it was a very interesting project but B they animated that character to my own face and that's a thrill for someone to draw a cartoon that, that, that actually looks like you playing a part in a in a series based on the Doctor Who story. So it was an absolute thrill. And I've got to say, actually, just as we're, as we're, as we're speaking about that, Richard E. Grant was brilliant, I thought. And he was a lovely man. And, you know, we were chatting and we were in the, in the canteen or, or something. And, and I said, look, mate, I'm sorry. I mean, you must get very bored by this, but I'm a massive fan of uh, yours, especially in with Neil and I. And he said, oh, you know, thank you. That's very kind of you. And I said, oh, does that not annoy you that everyone still goes on about that? And he went, absolutely not. It's better to be remembered for one great, great thing and for everyone to go on about it than never to have done that thing. And I think, I, I mean, I was quite young when he told me that, but it really resonated with me. You know, when they talk about doctors and Doctor Who's, where does he lie in the in the Doctor Who fandom? Oh, he's quite high up. A lot of people... Um kind of sad that he didn't get another go at it because when that was broadcasting they announced a new reboot so that kind of killed any plans for a sequel it's a shame because he was a brilliant brilliant doctor wasn't he he was yeah and if you go to play it if you go to these comic conventions you'll see fans dressed up as his doctor oh brilliant (laughs) so it does happen Oh, great. And I mean, in terms of, say, me as an an actor, I mean, how relevant is that connection with me being in something to do with Doctor Who and the connection with Queer as Folk and Russell T. Davis? Is that that anything that's mentioned from time to time or is that... Yeah, it's um, something I've heard of. Um, Most people seem to think Vince was basically just Russell T. Davis. (laughs) Well, to be fair... I think there was a lot of Russell T. Davis in Vince. I've spoke to Russell about this a, a few times, but I remember at the time when I was shooting, him saying the main characters, you know, were all part of him. But I've subsequently talked to him again about that. And he says, well, it's not necessarily just me. It's all of us, really. You know, we've, we've possibly all got those sides to us, which is, which is true. But I, I definitely think there is a smidgen more of Vince in Russell T. Davis and vice versa. I think Russell T. Davis is more Vince than Stuart and Nathan, shall we say. <laughs> and, and certainly his absolute love, his love for Doctor Who. I mean, I remember being in the studio because we shot that particular bit in a sh- studio space and Vince's flat was, you know, it was built up. So it was a big space. And then you had this, this bedroom that was built and then you had this TV on and with me in my, I think I had a night robe on or something. I think it was episode one. And I remember repeatedly having to watch this, you know, this sequence of Doctor Who. And I actually really got into it, you know, because I was, as a kid, I, I was into Doctor Who. I mean, you know, who wasn't? 
I was really chuffed to see how it went for Russell and for Doctor Who, because let's face it, he did an incredible job with it, didn't he? Oh, he did, yeah. I'd never seen the show before 2005, so yeah, he hooked me in right then. I've made friends because of the Doctor Who connection. Yeah. People who are going to come to my wedding that I wouldn't have known without the show. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing what what he brought back and what he achieved and brought it into the mainstream, because it always just kind of been this niche little show that people knew about but yeah yeah but, but, but when it was first aired on the bbc it got millions of viewers right i mean did it, it not? did but i think towards like the 80s it was kind of seen as a bit of a joke <laughs> really yeah. well well you look at how good tom baker is though oh he's for fantastic me, for me he's just incredible he's just like he's got something otherworldly about him as as a person i mean i I've never properly met him. I think we've sort of crossed paths doing a voiceover. Have you ever heard that there's a clip of him? I'm not sure if he knows he's being recorded and he's do, he's doing an ad. Uh, and he's, he's had living about this ad that he's recorded. Oh, about the pronunciation he, and stuff. Oh, my God. It's, it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Have you seen I mean, Toast of London? I have seen Toast of London. It's a, yeah, yeah, it reminds me a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's just brilliant, isn't it, that show? Oh, I Toast love of that. London's, yeah. Absolutely fantastic. He's a funny, funny guy. Very, very talented as well with his with his music as well. And and, and he did some kind of sketch show at one point as well. He did, yeah. Which I also saw a bit of. Which was, you know, I mean, he's he's just very, very funny, isn't he? Another sort of clang here. But I've met him as well, and I've spent some time with with him. And you know, again, he's a nice guy, and he's funny in real life. He's very, very dry. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sharp guy. Sharp. A lot of people want him to be in Doctor Who. I think he'd be a great Doctor Who, wouldn't he? I think he would be, yeah. 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 So you mentioned Chorus Folk just then. I want to get back to that because I rewatched yeah. some of it last night. I did too. And yeah, I, I can't believe that show's 21 years old. Does it feel that it was that longer? Well, it's interesting. It's a weird thing time because if you ask me without thinking about it, I'd say it was about 10 years ago, knowing that it wasn't. You know, I mean, I know when it was... Uh, shot, but it does feel like like it was almost yesterday. But then I think, well, what have I done in terms of my life and my career since? And it and it's and it's quite a lot. So so yeah, I mean, I'm amazed it's 21 years old. Although in some ways it still feels fresh, it still feels relevant. I still get young kids who are approaching me when I'm buying a coffee, saying that they've just got into it and thank you. And, you know, it's one of those shows that you do and you know you're doing something special at the time, but you don't really know how big it will get because you can't possibly. Because what happened with that show is all I knew is that it was a great script, it was a great part. I felt a bit nervous saying yes to it. Only because at that point, straight men playing gay men, you know, could kind of go either way for your career. You know, but I looked at someone like Gary Oldman and Danny Day-Lewis, who had, who, had, who had both done it and done it brilliantly. In fact, I remember watching them thinking, well, you know, the, the, to me, I don't question that they're straight men playing gay. They, that when they play that character, they are that person. I remember, you know, a little bit of, nerves but because of my training and it's all about the story and it's all about the character and it's all about being truthful i just i just went for it and i trusted that script and that's what it boiled down to i think you know you had a great production company in red and 
you had a great team behind it, but ultimately it was the script. It was all about that script. And I remember reading that script and laughing and being shocked and being inspired and thinking, God, this might just change the world. And for an actor of 28, which is what I was, I remember just thinking, just go for it, you know? And and the rest is history. It went from what possibly we thought was just going to be a a niche audience to mainstream. I mean, and for for two years there or more, I was, it was like I was in take that, should we say. (laughs) I remember all the posters everywhere. I was at college at the time and nearly every lesson would turn into a discussion about queer as folk. Mm. Yeah, and, and was that in, in a good way? Was that in a positive way? Uh, it depended whose lesson we were in and who was in it. Most people were positive, but you'd get the couple yeah. that are like, oh, I don't think this should be on TV. Um, I mean, doesn't that seem so... So I, I hope that people wouldn't have those those thoughts now because I hope that we've moved on so much. Well, it's weird because you know? I think of the 90s as being really recent, like you said, like 10 years ago. But it was, a, it was like... 20 years ago and yeah the world has changed a lot since then and hopefully those sort of discussions don't happen anymore but then again the first thing that changes the trend is always gonna meet the most resistance yes yeah so so did you watch it at the time when it was aired yeah i had to come out as straight to my parents because they saw me watching (laughs) this and i was into acting and musical theater and stuff like that so a lot of assumptions were made craig Yes, 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 I'll bet, I'll bet. I remember having this four-hour conversation where I was like, no, I like women. There was articles about that kind of thing, how masculinity was changing and and you were allowed to have, you know, a a feminine side, you know, and you were allowed to talk about your feelings and indeed be into musical theatre. Yeah. You know, gay or straight. And you could now moisturise, which is great, because men didn't (laughs) used to do that. (laughs) <laughs> and just for the record, I love a bit of musical theatre, and I love Excellent. love to moisturise. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned your podcast earlier, so I'm yeah. a massive fan of that. What was the inspiration? Oh, thanks, behind starting Thank it? you. Well, it was it was quite simple, really. You know, I've made a, a living from not just acting, but but from my voice. And I'm often told I've got a nice voice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm often told that I can have a chat with people. Quite for quite a few years, people close to me were saying, "You know, you should do something with your voice. You should get your own radio show. You should get your own podcast. You should do this." And I was like, "Yeah, when the time's right. When the time's right." Because I'm a great believer in that. Sometimes I just don't want to do it until I want to do it, or until a twist of fate brings me to the point. And this particular twist of fate was lockdown, because that had happened and we were about six weeks into it and it, you know it felt like wartime it felt like a very dystopian kind of world for a bit there didn't it and i bought all this lovely kit to do a professional work um you know for ads and documentaries etc cetera, etc cetera. and i built it in my airing cupboard my wife just said hey why don't you do a podcast just phone up all your mates just chat, you know, start off with some, some questions with the, with the kids. And then we talked about, okay, well, how do we end it? Well, let's end it with their favorite song. And then the rest, we'll just see what happens. And that's literally it. And then I just started texting my famous mates. I said, I'm doing this, would you like to do it? And they all said, yeah, we'd love to. And I was like, wow, okay. 
And then suddenly I'd got, I've got about 10 that were lined up and I thought, all right, well, I've got to do it now. And there's something beautiful about doing a podcast, you know, as you know, because you're free to talk. You can always take something out if you swear too much or if you don't sound good. And it kind of is a lot of fun and it frees you up. And what I found about it was the questions that I wanted to ask were the ones that I wanted to ask in the sense that I had no agenda. I didn't want to stitch them up. I wanted a nice conversation between mates pretty much, but also not just that. I wanted like some gold nuggets. And I think why people are really liking it is because there's a level of trust between me and my guests. And let's face it, I can chat and I can have a bit of banter. And the questions from the kids always, uh, whatever question it is, even if it's a very simple question, often brings something out in the in the guest. You know, like when I said to Terry Hall, Vincent wants to know what you dreamt last night. And it's such a lovely question. You know, we as adults sometimes don't ask those questions. And of course, Terry then says, oh, I didn't dream last night, but I have got a recurring dream about Simon Le Bon on a speedboat. Which, which made me, it made me laugh my tits off. To be honest, so that 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 makes me so happy that you're a big fan of that. It really does. So thank um, you for saying that. Yeah, it's like I, my baby. I love that you ask questions from your kids. It's such a unique mm. way of doing things. Yeah, yeah, and it's not contrived either. It's just just an idea that we just thought. Well, let's do something different. And when I started doing it. Um, a lot of people knew I was about to do it, friends and people close to me. Oh, you want to listen to him? Oh, you should listen to this. And I said, you know what? I've not really listened to a podcast before. So I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it this way because this is authentic to me. And then no one can accuse me of ripping anybody off. So it was quite simple. Kids' questions, go off on a tangent, end with the famous song. Because uh, it's not famous song, famous song. But what? But again, that's another love of mine. I love a bit of a sing song. You see, part of it is is for is for me to exercise my creative um, muscles. But also, between me and you, don't tell anyone this because I love to have a sing song. <laughs> what's your What's your favourite song to bust out? Well, I tell you what, my favourite song is "You'll Never Walk Alone." Excellent. Are you a Liverpool fan? Yes. Oh, yes, okay. I am. Makes sense. But the thing about that song is um, it, it, it's a beautiful song anyway. And it, it literally, every time I hear it, I've heard it about a thousand times, it sends goosebumps down my spine, if that's a thing. Is it goosebumps down your spine? I've forgotten where the goosebumps are. But anyway. I think it works. You know what I mean? It, it, yeah, it, 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 it just touches me every single time. And, and that's because the song is a beautiful song. You know, it's so musical, actually. And the way that Jerry and the pacemakers sing it, it's just, I mean, he sings like an angel. And then, you know, I think, I think it was one of my dad's favourite songs. We played that at his funeral. It's, it's, it's the song of Liverpool. And it's a song that I have now passed on to my children. And I just love the sentiment of, of it. So it's not, just, it's not just because it's the Liverpool song. I think it stands on its own two feet if it if it wasn't their anthem. 
I mean, I've got many, many, many favourite songs, but but if you put me on the spot and, and I had to choose one, it would it would be that one. Put it this way: when I'm on Desert, I- Desert Island Discs, when I'm on that show, <laughs> it will be my favourite. That's the one I'll choose. That's a really beautiful tale. Thank you. I actually brought a book because of your podcast. Which book did you buy? <laughs> it was for my daughter. <laughs> And you asked yeah. Chris Marshall a question from the Would You Rather book. Mm. And yeah, mm. I went out and went straight to Amazon and brought that immediately because I was like, my daughter would love this. And, and is, it, is it good? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it a book that I should buy? I, I, should, I should buy that for my... How old's your daughter? She's eight. Okay, perfect. Because so, my daughter's nine and my boy's five. So is, 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 is it perfect for that age group? Though? Oh, yeah, yeah. She likes to... Because all the kids... That, we live in a flat and uh, all the kids in the flats play so she'll often take the book out into yeah. the hallway and they'll all sit there and they'll take it in turns to ask each other would you rather so go on give me one i haven't got the book in front of me okay let's make one up then yeah okay oh, all right then okay here's one for you you know if you're speaking to chris marshall there's something like would you rather a what was it, a slug smoothie or a worm sandwich? I'd probably go for the worm sandwich because then you at least get the protein. That's what Chris said. Yeah, oh, I've, I've probably just nicked his answer subconsciously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think you've nicked But it's Chris Marshall, man. What a, what a lovely guy. And, and his little story about when he sort of wiped out in front of those old beers. Yeah. You know, you don't get stories like that, you see. And, and I, you know, I think that was part of it, the fact that, you know, I wanted these... It wasn't necessarily about the fame, but that's quite an important thing because it's interesting to to me as well and and to people. But you know, what I liked about doing that podcast with those friends is is there was no agenda. It was an unguarded chat. Often, I'm not sure if if you get that. You know, certainly with famous people because I think they can be quite quite rightly quite guarded. You know. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, even I am. I mean, you know, whatever level of fame I have, I've taught myself to, you know, be conscious of what I'm saying. You know, when that red um, button is on. So I think, I think it's part of a of a, of a instinct. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Understandably. Yeah. Yeah. So so much stuff gets twisted and taken out of context and used for a soundbite and. Yes, exactly. That's what I love about podcasting. Like you said, it's just a long-form conversation. It's a great way to truly get somebody's essence. I think so, yeah. I, I, and, it's, and it's funny as well because I actually enjoy telling stories, being told stories. I enjoy banter. I've got a sort of little instinct, which is I, I want to get those little gold nuggets. I'm not saying I'm a journalist because I'm not, but do I fancy myself as someone who could interview famous people yeah i'd quite fancy that whether whether that ever happens i'm not sure but i wasn't sure necessarily it was the skill that i had because let me tell you especially if i'm um with mates one of my main faults is to sometimes not listen and to try and be you know the center of attention and the funny one and the this and the that and the other and so with my podcast when i was listening to them back say from the first one to the to the last one i i get better at listening i get better at not feeling i have to jump in you know it's um, a balancing act you got to get that 
level yeah. right because obviously you're going to have people that tune in every week for you yeah right? you're also going to have people that have just tuned in for that particular guest how do you find you must have a good uh, core set of people who listen to you because because if you've if you've You've done so many for over three years, is it? Have you done it for about two, three, four years? What? About ten years. <laughs> oh my god, that's even more impressive. Yeah, it's I been a while. Totally guessed it was three years. So, yeah. how many do you knock out of the park then? Do you do, do you do sort of sort of one or two a month? We try roughly? to, but you know, real life gets in the way. Kids and work and life and whatever. And have you got a good, a, a, you know, good core? Yeah, um, yeah, the figures are healthy. Audience, oh, good for you, mate. Good yeah, we you. get like ad spots and stuff. People contacting us. Great, great, yeah. happy days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Um, people, people said to me that oh, just keep doing it, keep doing it. But you know, but in the end, I just went. You know what? I'll do fifteen for the first series, and then I'll have a break because I couldn't keep the quality up. Really, I couldn't do my research in time. I couldn't set up the airing core. I was going to call it a studio the airing cupboard and you know what it's like to sometimes nail a guest down it you know it can be quite quite tricky at times because they've got commitments or you know suddenly when you're about to record your your kids are screaming outside yeah especially because of lockdown so in the end i i decided quality was better than quantity you know which is why i've stopped it um at 15 but i've i've got about seven lined up for the next series already Oh, excellent. Yeah, I was going to ask when do you think that'll be out? I'm going to start it soon. I mean, I've got I've got about seven seven people that, that uh, want to do it. Interestingly enough, about three of them asked me if they could do it, which was, you know, a big, oh, wow. a big compliment. Yeah, yeah. In fact, someone like Terry Hall, you know, because most of them, Terry Hall and Tom Robinson were the only two that weren't my mates. I'd met Tom once. I'd never met... Oh, I met Terry once, actually, years and years ago at a, a wedding. And Terry Hall was like, well, I've got no chance of getting Terry Hall. He doesn't do these things. But I'd done about five or six because he followed me on Instagram. And me, him, I, I, I just asked him, as, as you do. And to my amazement, he said, yeah. And that, that gave me a massive, massive buzz. You know, because when I, you know, when, when I was a kid, I had... I, I'd, him and Suggs up on my wall when I was nine. Yeah. You know, so, so that was the joy, really. The next series, hopefully, will be out in about a month. Excellent. So you're going to yeah. get your brother on? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? He has been the trickiest person to nail down. It's made me laugh. And then, <laughs> when it started doing well, and he started listening, to, to be fair to him, that, no, he listened and supported from, from, the, from the start, you know. But then... But then it was like the minute I called time on series one, he's like, what, 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 what about me? I said, I've, I've asked you, I've asked you about 10 times, kid. And you just, you just haven't, but you know, you haven't been around and, and, and he's gone, right, well, let's do a special. I was like, so you want me to do a Dean Lennox Kelly special? He went, yeah. I said, okay, well, well, I might do. So maybe there'll be a Dean Lennox Kelly special because that would be a good chat. That me would and my be, brother. Yeah. Me and my brother get on brilliantly, and there's a lot, there's a lot of humour there. There's a lot of banter, which leads me to: Have you had a chance to watch my film? I did. Yeah, I've got that down as a question. 
Have you, have you, have you, what, you've watched it, have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched it last oh. year. And you know how dumb I am? I didn't realise that you and Dean were brothers until that film came out. Well, that's because the Lennox in his name. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And we don't necessarily look that similar. If you get us in a room, you can tell that we're brothers instantly. Now I know I can see it. Yeah. But yeah, he's got that massive that. beard, hasn't he? He's, he's, he's had that massive beard since he was about 15. Yeah, so you were heavily involved in that film. Like You produced it. So how did that yeah. come about? That came about quite simply because my brother-in-law, who is the, the main writer, Geraint he's called, he wanted to write a screenplay and he wanted to make a film and I wanted to make a film and star in a film. So we just got together about three years ago. We had a drink and we said, let's make a film. How amazing would that be? And we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I said, I said, what film should, should we do it? And he said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write it for you and, 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 your, and your brother, so let's have that angle. I said, okay, well, so we talked, we chatted, and we ended up thinking, well, let's talk about what we know, which is being an old father, relatively, you know, because in the 60s and 70s, you were, you know, you were a dad at 21. Yeah, yeah. And if you were 26, you were ancient, you know. <laughs> so here we were, we both had a child, our first child, when when we were about 40. And we chatted about how openly, you know, that had knocked us to six a little bit. And, and I told him that I, I struggled with, with that first year because, I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, having a child is absolutely incredible, but the responsibility, the pressure, the non-sleeping, you know, the, the fact that your, your relationship with your wife changes because of the child, I mean, it changes, uh, you know, and then you get by. You know what I'm talking about. There's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of moving parts, and it's such yeah. a massive, massive change. And, and I said to him, well, you know, I can be honest now. I got down. I got down that, that first time in that first year. Not all the time, but, but sometimes I struggled. You know, I struggled as a new father being that age and facing my own mortality and the responsibility that you needed to be a good dad. I thought, I wonder how many other men have, have struggled. And he said that he had, and then we talked to other people. And there was like this connection between being an old father and having had your party days and your fun, or in some ways how much harder it was to be an old dad as opposed to a young dad who was 25. That's where that seed started and then we wanted to make a thriller that was funny we wanted to set it in blackpool and then we had this night where we were bouncing about ideas and then about a week or two later dear right sent me the treatment and i again i sat down it was raining i remember i was about to do a and i read this treatment and i got shivers down my spine it, it, it was that good and at that point i thought i think we're going to make a film and then i got back to him and i said look this is this is great just just go and write it and he wrote this terrific, terrific screenplay, which was only his second screenplay, I think, maybe. And I said, look, this is brilliant, so let's now fine-tune it. So we spent about three months doing that, and then, and then when I felt it was ready, I said, right, let's now cast it on paper, and let's approach. Well, our idea was to cast it within my circle. So everyone in that film... You know, apart from Jessamine, who played the, the femme fatale type. Apart from her, everyone else is my mate. So then you're sending out this wicked little script, this interesting script, this darkly funny script. And everyone said, yeah. And then we armed with that, we, we then 
knocked on doors and we amazingly got the money in about a year. And before we knew it, we were filming. And then, of course, because filmmaking is a very tricky process, we spent all our money and then spent another year or nearly a year trying to raise more money to just, just to get it through post-production. The whole process took approximately about three years until we actually got it released. So it was an absolutely incredible thing to do, but it took every cell in, in my body, every sinew, every fiber, because if you're not absolutely obsessed by that kind of project, you will never get it made. And Spike Lee once said that it's almost impossible to make a good film. And I, I, I don't know what he means because you can fuck it up in so many stages. In the writing, in the casting, in the music, in the editing, in the grading, choosing what sales agent, choosing this, 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 and this. And after all that massive speech that I've just done, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Did you actually enjoy it? I did. I know. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I love that the film plays with family dynamics and Mm -hmm. the fact that they're estranged brothers. But when when push comes to shove, they're still there for each other. I know I've got family members now that I haven't seen for years I haven't really yeah. spoken to for a while, but if they knocked yeah. on my door right now and needed my help, I'd help them. Yes. Well, that's it. Did you like all the twists and turns? Yeah, the twists and turns were great. I've heard you talk also, about the eleven eleven thing, so I wanted to get yeah. onto that. That sent me well, down like this massive rabbit hole on the internet of eleven eleven and parallel dimensions yeah. and yes, <laughs> all yeah, of that. Yes. Yeah, well, where that was from was how the how one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I got that film made was I went to see a, a shaman probably about, when was it? It was about four, four years ago now. And it was basically at the start of that process, just before that process of making that film. And, I, and she was like a psychic and a shaman and, and, and a healer. And she was recommended by a friend, you know, and I thought, you know what? Anything that improves my life, I will, I'll give it a go. Anyway, she, she, after about 10 minutes, she said, oh, I'm getting that you're going to do something great in about a year if you stop drinking. I said, sorry? She went, don't have a drink for a year and something great will happen. I said, you're joking me. <laughs> she said, no, 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 just, just, just do it. That's, that's what I'm telling you. As a psychic, that's what I'm getting. I said, okay, so we had this, this, this session. And in this session, what she did was incredible. She did this little journey with, with maracas and, and, and a song and chakras, et cetera, et cetera. But it's essentially clearing any, any negative energy that might be there and just basically um, filling you with light and positivity and warmth. And I swear to God, I felt like a million dollars after this session. I literally felt reborn. I felt amazing. Uh, it was like every cell in my being had been cleansed and it was like a, a fresh start. So I just went, I'm going to stop drinking for a year. I'm going to see what happens. And it was, it was that simple. Within that, about four weeks later, I then found myself having a chat with Geraint. And then for a year, until I got all that money, I sorted out the schedule, a year to the day, I didn't drink. And then on the, on the day after the year, I had this beautiful pint of Guinness at the Toucan in Soho. And, and I, I went back to Susanna. I said, Susanna, it's great. About to do this film. You were right. This is fantastic. I mean, I'd seen her a few times in, in the process of that year. 
And she said, well, why have you started drinking again? I said, because you only said a year. And she said, <laughs> no, you've now got to film it. Don't drink until after the film. I was like, oh, for God's sake, I've got to stop again. <laughs> so I then stopped uh, again, which, which was quite easy because it was only for about six, seven or eight weeks. And I did the film. And the reason why 11-11 happened was because I went into it just before I started filming. And I said, I, this, this is happening. This film is happening. And I said, but I want to put something into the film that I think is important. She said, what's that? I said, well, when it all starts getting trippy for him, I want the clock to say 11-11. I, I want this film to have that angle to it, that energy in it because of what we've done. And she said, well, that's a great idea. And I said, I'm also not sure about the title, Trick or Treat. I think maybe potentially we should call the film 11-11. I, I think it needs that magic in this film. And basically she journeyed me again, which is basically you, you, you relax, you lie down and, you know, you do tuning forks, et cetera, et cetera. It's very, very calming, you know, and you sometimes doze off, you know, you have a light sleep. You know, when I woke up, she came and said to me, I think your film's blessed. It's going to be a great little film. And I said, why? And she said, because I got an overwhelming urge to look at the clock just as I was finishing your journey and guess what time it was and I said oh no don't she said 11 11 so I carried that with me I carried that sense of that kind of magic and that power of the universe into filming this film and let me tell you I have never had a better experience on set everything went perfectly well when we shot that film so much so that I, I worried because sometimes you will shoot a film and you'll have an absolute nightmare doing it and the end product is brilliant. You, you can never tell. And often, sometimes if you have a fantastic time on the film set, it can be an absolute turkey. Because I had such fun, the most fun I've ever had in my entire career, and that includes shooting Queer as Folk, which was incredible. I had so much fun on this set, and everyone around me did. I genuinely believe it was the positivity that I'd got from those sessions and the fact that 11.11 was sprinkled into this film. The idea of 11.11 for me in that film was basically this guy is, he, he, it's a time of change for him. Because without giving too much away, you find out later in the film that he was seriously down and he was considering doing something drastic. Ultimately, the film is about love. Do you know what I mean? When you finish watching yeah. that film and you realize what has actually happened, what you think is happening is different to what actually did happen. Yeah, and also, I, like I, wanted, well, I wanted that extra dimension. I, I want me and you to have that conversation of, you know, when you were watching it for the first time, there's an element of you thinking, well, I know for me, I'm trying to put words into your mouth and I don't, don't mean to, but did you get a sense that it could be in his head or it could be a supernatural experience or it could be something otherworldly or it could have just been the fact that he had a massive strong split at the start of the film? What did you, you know, oh, what every, did you get? Every thought went through my head. There was one point where I was like, oh, maybe it's aliens. Yeah, it's supernatural <laughs> stuff. Um, I like the aliens. I like the aliens. <laughs> Parallel, you, there, there's an energy to the film that you yeah. don't really get with a gangster film normally. No. Is that, do you think that comes from the fact that you were so passionate about it? Definitely. Well, I mean, 
you know, I was in every frame of every second of that film, pretty much. And because I had worked on myself and I had done these journeys and I had this kind of clean energy on set, I think it rippled through. And everyone was excited about filming that film because, you know, it was a low budget British film, independent, that me and Geraint, first time producers, had managed to create. And everyone was buzzing about the scripts and buzzing about the potential of it. I mean, how often do you get to be a producer on set, star in it? I cast it as well, pretty much. Having your brother, who's like your your best mate, and Geraint, who you know, who's another close mate, and you're the one being asked the questions about this, 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 and this. It was just like a dream, really. And that's why I'm so, so proud of it. But interestingly enough, on a smaller scale, I'm almost equally as proud of the podcast because it's because it feels like my baby as well. But I'm so, so glad that you watched that film. Thank you. And, and you know, if you can spread the word and get it seen by oh, as many people. Because it's got a release in America, which is off the scale. It's, it's like, you know, they've got DVD copies of, of me on these covers with a pumpkin in Walmart all, all across the United States of America. That's brilliant. Yeah, and so it's got a digital release there and it's got, it's got a physical release in Walmart. I, I'm hoping that the film will continue to uh, be seen by people for many, many years to come. But even if this is it, then you know it was worth doing. I think it's going to be one of those films that gains momentum every Halloween. Yes, yeah, because because it's got that backdrop. Um, I mean, and the whole symbolism of the Grim Reaper as well, and you know, and the whole idea when you find out who was that Grim Reaper, who who was the Grim Reaper that came to his door and said those those spooky things. I've got to say, and I'm not just saying this, but. You know, I would always say to people, if you can buy it, because I think you can buy it for four ninety nine, and you can rent it for, for about, you know, two, two or three quid. I think it's one of those films that you should buy because I genuinely think you can watch it two or three times and you can still get more little moments, you know. Like, like for me, I think it's probably up there with the best things that I've ever done in terms of being an actor. It's certainly the thing that I'm probably, you know, if I was brutally honest, I'm probably most happy with my performance in there because of the detail that I put into it and because I helped write it as well. And because, um, let's face it, I knew that character <laughs> because it was based on me. <laughs> but anyway, I'm really pleased that you watched it. Thanks, mate. I thought I damned you, but I probably didn't. I meant to. Um, well, I mean, if you did, I, I'm, I'm not sure I saw it because I sometimes get DMs and I don't even see them until weeks later. And then I go, oh no, do you know I've missed that? And then you have that 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 mind battle with yourself where you think, oh, should I DM them back about six <laughs> weeks later or not? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, think, yeah, oh, I've no. had that. And then you end up just sort of liking it, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, I mean, have you have you have you happened to to mention it to anyone else who's who's actually gone and seen it or? Yeah, I told my friends about it. it. I don't know if they've watched it yet. When Halloween comes around again, it's definitely going to gain momentum. Yeah, but but I I also think it's relevant if you if you like a, an interesting movie that's a bit trippy. Let's face it, it's a bit trippy. Uh, it makes me quite emotional when I when I see the film, and I don't know whether that's because I put my heart and soul into it, and that's my brother, and I was such a part of it. But 
I think if I was watching it as a viewer, I think I'd be quite moved by it because, you know, this is what I've, I've said to people when, when I've chatted about it. I think at the heart of it is, is love, is a really big beating heart. And again, I don't want to give too much away, which is why I won't um, say any more. If you were to do a soundbite for it, you know, how would you describe it? On I'd say... Go on, bad Will. <laughs> I'd say it's trippy, like you said. Yeah. There's a lot of heart to it. There's a lot of... It's about family and love. Yeah. And there's a strong dynamic there. But it also yeah. ends in a really dark, comedic way. Yes, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> proper, proper... Yeah, you don't know what's going on until the final final frame pretty much yeah it's definitely worth checking out i would recommend and like you said it's it's a fiver on amazon to buy yes yes it so is, yeah it it's is. definitely worth it so i've Brilliant. Frank, i've got to ask you a question from my mum before i yeah go on Fire uh, away. is it about cory it's in that wheelhouse she doesn't know who anyone is whenever i'm telling mm-hmm. her i'm doing a podcast unless they've been yeah. on cory or strictly so <laughs> her question was what was it like doing strictly come dancing I'll be honest with you, it, 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 it was a bit of a nightmare because I'll tell you why. I really respect that show. I think anyone who goes on it has got massive balls, especially if they can't really dance. So the reason why, why it was a bit of a nightmare for me is because normally I'm good at things, you know. Most things I can do, I, I do it without, you know, just you know, on a general sense. And also I have the ability to become good at something or because of the work ethic you know that i've got the thing about strictly was i was offered it like four months before it became public and my wife said to me i'm not sure you can dance and i said (laughs) i'm all right i've got a bit of rhythm how hard can it be i've got an amazing work ethic i've got world-class dancer i'll be all right and of course i was a lamb to the slaughter because most people that go on that show have had some kind of dance training, whether that's when they were a kid or doing ballet or, or at drama school or at some kind of course, a lot of them who go on sensibly know that they can dance. Okay. But me with my, you can call delusional self-belief, I just went, give it hundred percent. I'm sure that I'll be fine. And of course I went on there and my story, the narrative that they created for me was that I couldn't really do it, and it was, uh, uh, and I was like, like the shit one, you know. Uh. And I found that difficult because they could have equally have gone the other way and 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 made me the plucky underdog that grew in confidence and grew as a dancer. That just didn't really happen. In the end, my narrative was that I wasn't a great dancer. I struggled a bit, but at least I got to Blackpool. Now, in hindsight, I think it's a great thing that I did it, and my kids absolutely cannot believe I was on Strictly Come Dancing. And now, for the first time in over 10 years, I can actually look at my dancers and go, that wasn't that bad at all. That was all right. I gave it a go. So one more thing that I'd like to say, I have never been so nervous in my entire life Every single time they would go, I could Craig Kelly and Flava Kakacha, please come out for the waltz. It was like being thrown out of an airplane, not knowing if your parachute was going to open. Oh, I can imagine. So they might as well have said, could Craig Kelly come to the dance floor and shit his pants? <laughs> <laughs> um, you might want- so, 
Well, <laughs> I might have won. You're probably right. You know what? That's what I should have done. That would have got me the sympathy <laughs> Just vote, think of it? the notoriety you would have if you'd shit yourself on Strictly if Come I'd Dancing. Have, I, if I'd have actually have shit him, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I think my sex appeal might have gone out the window. <laughs> uh, I was paid very well. I've got to be grateful for that. I can do all those dances. I haven't done them since, but I can do them. It was an experience. It was a very, very tough experience. And at points, it was a bit of a nightmare because, you know, your family's having to watch that. Although I didn't get terrible marks, actually, in hindsight, you know, they were okay. I was getting 20, 21, 22. I think I got like 25 a couple of times. They weren't actually that bad. I suppose the lesson learned was maybe I shouldn't have taken myself so, so seriously. And maybe I should have set myself up a little bit. And maybe I should have left my ego at the door. I guess it's a tricky thing because... When somebody's telling you you can't do something, you just want to prove that you can. Yes. Uh, the little yeah, child, like and, yeah. <laughs> the child in, in me came out. I'll show them. You know, I'll get a 30. But you know what? Equally, I might have just come through. I might have conquered my nerves. I never managed to conquer my nerves. People said to me, why, why is that when you can go on stage and you can do what you do and never get nervous? I said, because I've worked on a script. I know the, the script inside out. I've trained as an actor. This is what I've trained for. It transpires I'm not a natural dancer. I've never danced before. So it was like that feeling of going on stage and forgetting your lines. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that was the fear. That's why I could never quite conquer that fear. I challenge you to look back at any of my dances. You'll see the fear in my eyes. I mean, (laughs) every every dance I did was like an out-of-body experience. Does your mum remember me on it? Did she sort of feel, oh, bless him? I mean, you know... So always likes the underdog it. she feels that yeah, when people absolutely. go on the show and they've got previous dancing experience that yeah. it cheapens the idea she prefers to see people evolve as the show goes on you know i think i evolved i mean between me and you i'd have been a lot better if i'd have you know if i'd have not i wouldn't say cheated but if if i'd have got some dance lessons in before i started i'd have done a lot better but you know you live and learn I mean, that particular year, Chris Hollins, who was very like me in the sense that he'd never really danced before, and, and I don't think he'd ever you know, had any lessons, he did what I couldn't do. He left his ego at the door and just gave himself over to the dancers. And, and I was so delighted for him that he won, you know, because I knew him a little bit and he's a lovely fella. And I was delighted that he won that year because, you know, because he was a fantastic story. But he managed, as I say, to do what I couldn't. He managed to give himself over to the dance and he managed to basically go go with those dances. And I think for me, because it was always like an out-of-body experience, uh, I think even Craig said that to me. He said, darling, it's like you're watching yourself, looking down upon yourself. You, you can't do that. You have to, you're getting all the steps right and everything's fine, but you're you're not, feeling the dance you're not feeling the music and let's face it that's what dancing's all about did you find that your body was changing shape a lot during that show oh definitely i mean i got you know i got really in shape doing it i think i think i ended up losing a good half a stone and and, oh yeah you you ache like you wouldn't believe i put a lot of hours in but but between me and you i think i was also drinking quite a few pints of lager you know to comfort myself after a day's training <laughs> so so i mean i think i could have been leaner if i'd have cut out the um high calorie lagers 
but I didn't because I needed them at the time. <laughs> Craig, yeah. we're approaching the hour mark now, and I know you're busy, so I'll ask you Not one coming. final question. You posted recently the shooting script for Titanic, so I just wanted to ask, yes. what was it like working on that? It, it was incredible. It was a brilliant, brilliant job. I was only supposed to be there for, for, for two weeks and ended up being there for three months because James Cameron, I actually, he gave me about an extra eight little small scenes. So I started off with about, six small scenes and I ended up having about 10, 11 or 12 small scenes because he, he really liked my character and he, he wanted it in there. And so when I went to the premiere, the Royal premiere, because I was invited, I was delighted. I thought I was going to have a really decent sized part in it. And only three of my scenes made it because he had to be brutal because I heard that the first edit was five hours. Ooh. And he had to get it down to was what was it in the end? It's three about hours. Three hours, yeah. Yeah. So it was wonderful. It was a wonderful time. I got paid well for it. I was in Mexico. It was a ball, mate. It was probably probably although it was the smallest part I think I've been in a production, probably the biggest film that I'll ever be in. And it was a great, great time. Happy days. What was it like being on the ship? Did they build like a full replica ship or was it like a half they, they built it to seven-eighths of the original size. Oh, wow. But when you went downstairs to the studios, they, they, I think they pretty much matched it. The level to detail Jim Cameron went to, and I can call him Jim because his friends call him Jim, the level of detail that man put into that, that production, the plates, you would get a plate that wasn't even really seen that would have the the markings of the plates that were on the Titanic, wow. the cutlery, the costumes, the level of detail Mr. Cameron put in to that uh, show and the work that he put into it. You know, when we were doing it, it started off as like a 70, 80 million dollar production. That's what I was told when I was offered the film. I mean, I met James Cameron. He, he, he came to London. I'd already got the part because I was put on tape and I got the part, I was offered it. And then he he, um, he auditioned me again for the for the other guy who was going to play the senior wireless operator. You know, I'll never forget meeting him, which was incredible. And then after this 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 test that I did, which was basically you know for this other lad, he turned around and went, "Hey guys, I want you guys in my movie." It was just like the stuff of dreams because I was only about twenty five, and I remember saying something like, well, "What's the budget, Jim?" Because <laughs> I'd heard that, that his mates called him Jim. He went, well, you know, he, and he didn't tell me, but uh, anyway, <laughs> I spoke to my agent, and the agent said, so it's you know, about $80 million. I remember thinking, wow. Jeez. And then we were halfway through shooting, and then someone told me that it, had, it basically spiraled. I think it ended up being $200 million. And I don't know how many people know this, but James Cameron gave his feedback. He oh, gave his feedback. Yeah, I, I, I remember being told that he gave 10, 10, 10, 10 million, 15 million dollars back. He said, you know, have my feedback. And the producer might have done the same. But of course, because the film did so well, I, I think I think he ended up making about 100 million from it. Yeah, he probably um, got something off the back end. Yeah, but what's amazing about this, just to, you know, just to finish this, this story, what I really love about Titanic is the random coincidence of when I'm on that roof as Vince Tyler reenacting the Titanic moment where Aiden's character, Stuart, says, King of the world. My character says, I'm always Kate Winslet. <laughs> I just absolutely love that. And people have asked Russell, have said, did you do that because Craig was in Titanic? And he said, no, absolutely not. 
I, I wasn't going through the script to see what people had been in so I could, you know, reference it in my script. It was just a beautiful coincidence, which, you know what, I'm proud of. I'm proud of Kurosawa. I'm proud of Titanic. So, you know, to have been in big, big shows like that is, is, is nice. Oh, Craig, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. You're absolutely welcome, mate. I look forward to hearing it, and thanks for having me on, buddy. Oh, anytime, anytime. Speak soon, mate. Yeah, speak soon. Okay, how great was that? Once again, I'd just like to thank Craig for being so generous with his time. Please check out his film and his podcast. I'll link them both below. Oh uh.